testimony and song. Thank you, Hiram, for that. And uh, a reminder of the unfailing love of our great God. Some, uh, some voices are more of a heavenly caliber than others, aren't they? And, um, Hiram has one of those voices. You know, the Apostle Paul concluded that there was nothing that could separate us from the love of God. I found that to be a, a huge comfort in life, particularly when you're in a circumstance that is really uncomfortable. And even in that moment, you, can, you know that you can say, I know God loves me right now. And it's really helpful, it's really important to have that at that moment. Let's thank him for that. Father, I, I do want to thank you for that. I, I know how many times I've called on that reality to realize that although the circumstance is uncomfortable and sometimes really painful and sometimes it's even harmful from our perspective we do know that in that moment you love us you don't withdraw your love and you don't change and so our father we want to thank you this morning for that and I pray that that might be a con constant vigil in our hearts, a reminder, a sentinel that says that you love us, you won't forsake us, you won't abandon us, you won't leave us. I pray now as we turn our attention to a particular um, message from you, from your word, uh, I pray, Lord, that um, <clears throat> you will, by the power of your spirit, apply it specifically to each life that's here because this is a, um, a, a message of courage and strength and hope and wonder at your grace and your kindness and your mercy. So we want, Father, that um, your great character and who you are would be front and center of our hearts today in Jesus' name. Have you ever wondered how bad is too bad for God? Maybe you've, um, maybe you haven't necessarily wondered about that as much as you've bumped into people who've said, God could never, God could never take me into his family, into his kingdom, because you have no idea how bad I am. You have no idea what my past is like. Uh, God would never have me. Or, or maybe you've encountered people who've said, I've, I've fallen so far that, and, and I've, and I've, I've disappointed God so much that there's no way that he could ever use me. There's, there's no possible way that, that from, from now on I'm, I'm set aside. I could never be in, in a position of influence or, or impact in the name of God. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2 this morning because um, there we encounter, I think, a response to the, those statements. It's a story about a a prostitute by the name of Rahab who is in fact used mightily by God. We have just several weeks ago come out of Joshua chapter 1 where in fact the people of God there have been told that they're going to go into the promised land, the thing they've been wandering around for 40 years, longing to, place they've longing to be. Now they're going to be taken there. In fact, um, 
the, the, uh, in that text, in the, in the first chapter there, God makes a big issue of the land. And seven times you're going to see that word appear. That God wants to take him in the place of the fullness of God. A place where the theocracy, where God will be king and rule over their hearts and rule over their land. and Rule over the, the culture and the civilization that is, that is the people of God. And he wants them to be there. And he wants them to get there this time. And, and he tells them to be strong and courageous. And, and uh, when we... Chapter 1 is, is basically a, a pep rally from God that, that says, you know, go. And, and so they're like, yeah, we can go. We can take that land. And they're all excited. They're, they're like a team before a big game. We're ready to, to storm heaven with squirt pistols. And, and we're ready to go, you know. And storm hell, I should say, with squirt pistols. And, and we're ready to go. And so, so they're, they're all excited. But at the very end of chapter 1, again, God says, be strong and courageous. And I believe as we move into chapter 2 and 3 and several other chapters now, God is going to continue to infuse in them courage. Because if we're willing to be honest with ourselves, we regularly overestimate the strength of our faith. And God regularly has to come and remind us that the faith that we need for the upcoming challenge that we think we have... We don't necessarily have. And so there's a lot of prep work in the Bible that is examples to us of the kind of prep work that God does in our lives. We're like, get on with it, God. You know, get on with the good stuff because I'm ready. Take, take me to the big challenge because I'm ready for the big challenge. I'm ready for go big. No, you're not. Regularly, we're not. We, we have a series of steps that God alone knows we need to go through in order for him to incrementally raise the bar and challenge us with our increasing faith. And so Joshua chapter 2 becomes that kind of a, a setting. This is how God, or one of the ways God is going to infuse courage and strength in his people. In fact, that's kind of the question that's being answered by Joshua 2. How is God going to infuse courage and strength and, and, into his people? So if your Bibles are open to Joshua chapter 2, we'll start reading at verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now I just want to stop for a moment at this first verse because it sets up something very, very significant. There are two rather startling realities that leap out of this first verse. And particularly uh, to the... um, the, the uh, people of Israel, whether the people who were at that present situation and scenario or even people, uh, the generation reading back this text later on, uh, they would, um, it would, it would surface some real emotions in their lives, th- this particular verse. If you remember, the, the last time there were spies that were going in to search out a land and do some espionage work, the people of God failed. And failed miserably. And went into a 40-year funk. Wandering around in the desert and not getting to the promised land. So that would be the first startling reality. But oh no, not this again. Like We've been through this spy thing. The second startling reality would be this mention of a prostitute. And the city of Shittim where Joshua launches the espionage mission. See, the last time... Shatim is mentioned, it was in Numbers 25, 
That was where the men of Israel prostituted themselves to the Canaanite women, turned their back on God, and 24,000 of them were slaughtered by a plague. So they're like, oh, not, not that again, not, not shatim, not prostitution. I got to wondering, um, why did God coincide those two realities? Well, why, why did he um, set the table this way? Was it so that he could throw it back in Israel's face? Remind them of their great failures? See, remember the time you failed me when, you, when, I, when I asked you before to go and search out the land? Remember that? I, I haven't forgotten about it. I'm still ticked off with you about that. Remember the time that you, you uh, prostituted yourselves and turned away from me at Shatim? You remember? I, I, haven't, I haven't forgiven you for that. He throws it in their face. Is that what God does? Oh. God doesn't throw things back in our face. Although he does regularly, at least I've found in my life, throw up faith lapses and remind me of them. Why does he do that? Well, I know that the response I have is not to think, oh, God is throwing this in my face. He's, he's uh, so uncaring. No, I don't think that way. When I remember a faith lapse in my life, I think, oh, how gracious God is. That I am still on this journey. That he is still loves me. That he's still using me after that. And so all I want to do is thank him and worship him and praise him. And, and realize that he is such a gracious God. And sometimes when you're getting too high and mighty spiritually, you know, thinking, wow, I'm really something. I'm reminded of a faith lapse. I'm, thinking, I'm looking at other people, oh, you know, why are they so sinful? Look at me, look at how wonderful I am. And God reminds me, you aren't so wonderful. Remember that? Remember that thing I forgive you for? forgave you for? You're on the journey just like they are. I, I think this was a really important moment in Israel's history. That they might face who God is and how gracious he is. And in spite of all their failures, all their lapses in faith, that God was going to take them around the block again and say, look, let's, let's take another run at this thing. Because God is gracious and kind. Let's continue reading the story. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. Parenthetically, but she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, 
Our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now she had said to them, Go to the hills, so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. The men said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless, when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, If anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head. We will not be responsible. As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to him, to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. This is God's message to us by his great word. So how does God infuse his people with courage? I would suggest to you that through extreme faith experiences, God teaches us to have life-changing beliefs. And I want to share three of them with you this morning that I think leap out at me from this text. There are more, but we'll just settle on three. The first is this, the only safe strategy is belonging to God. The only safe strategy in life is belonging to God. Now, from a human strategy perspective, this seemed like a good idea. They would spy out the land. And I I would have presumed that the two spies dressed up like Jerichoites. They probably put on the uniforms of the opposing team and snuck into the city. After all, uh, Jericho was an important city. In fact, Joshua said to them, especially go to Jericho. It's one of the older civilizations, scholars tell us. In fact, some say the oldest civilization ever, dating back about 8,000 B.C., fortified in 7,000 B.C. It's a very old place. It was very well established uh, with uh, opposition to God for many centuries by the time Israel came knocking. And so um, it it was a, a good idea, it seemed at the time, Uh, Dress up like the opposing team. And I know what we ought to do. We ought to go into the home of a prostitute. We ought to go into a bordello. It would make sense. Guys, they're coming, always coming and going from that house. It will never raise any suspicion. So they went to a prostitute's house. It says there, they secretly went into the city. We think, wow, seems like a good deal. And then within a verse, it says, the king of Jericho knew everything that was going on. He knew that two guys had come to the city. He knew where they were from. He knew exactly what prostitute's house they went to, when, where, what time. 
of all the prostitutes in the city of Jericho, the king of Jericho knew exactly where they were. And we're left thinking, wow, human strategy wasn't all that successful. But then as we continue on, we realize, wait a second, as we read on a little bit further, we, we find that uh, she just happens, a, a woman who's been used and abused by men for much of her life, shows kindness and grace to two traveling men, hides them up in her loft. And by the way, the, the grammar of the particular text suggests that she hid them long before the king of Jericho came to her, that, that, that she, uh, she had some sort of sense that these men were under extreme pressure and were in great danger. I wonder where she got that idea from. Because they didn't think they were in danger. We also find that the king comes knocking on her door. King of Jericho. He would be called the mayor of Jericho today, but they were all city-states back then, and so he was a king. A king who was smart enough to have the kind of uh, intelligence within his the city that uh, emailed him all kinds of instructions about what was coming and going in the city. They knew exactly what was going on, and he had a great uh, system for finding out information. But surprise, surprise, he sends his soldiers to whoever, his officials, to the door of this house of this harlot. And she says to him, oh yeah, the guys were here. I didn't know where they were from, and I just sent them out of here, and they took off. Oh, okay. They take the word of a, a moral lowlife in their city instead of checking her house and go running off hither and yon in the fields looking for in a wild goose chase. I wonder how that happened. And then, sort of as a, almost a, a comical capper, at the very end of the chapter, or near the end of the chapter, we have these two guys dangling out of the window on a wall for all to see, while all the king's horses and all the king's men are chasing around the hills trying to find them. I wonder how that came to be. It seems to me step after step of human failings and human purposes and human plans that seemed like a good idea at the time, give us a very loud message that it's all really about God. It, it was a divine intervention that, that caused uh, the king of Jericho. I suppose in the Jericho Gazette the next day it had some sort of lead line that said, uh, prostitute tricks king of Jericho. The king's sins cause him to be stupid. Something like that. Because in fact... It's not about the purposes and the plans and the strategies of men and women. The only safe place, the only safe strategy in life is belonging to God. The reason that these guys were taken care of and looked after was not because they had a good spy plan, not because they had a good costume to go into this city, not because they had the kindness necessarily of a prostitute, but because God, each step of the way, was intervening and protecting them. It wasn't about great tactics. It's about a great God. A God uh, who uh, had placed them under his protective custody. Is your safety in strategies or in your Savior God? Most of you know the story of, or parts of the story of Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom was born in 1892 and went home to be with the Lord in 1983. Corey and her family were used by God to rescue and protect Jews during the Second World War in Holland who were being hauled off for extermination. Eventually, 
her and her family were taken away to a camp. And there's an excerpt from The Hiding Place that I just want to share with you about the story of Corey and the amazing work of God and the safety of God. In September 1944, Corey and her sister Betsy were on the edge of the pit. Even though Ravensbrück was not an extermination camp, but a work camp under the Nazis, the two were virtually the same thing. How long could underfed women move great cartloads of steel from a factory to railway freight cars? Still, in all her months of confinement by the Nazis, Corey had her Bible. But this comfort too seemed lost as they entered Ravensbrück. She and Betsy shuffled along in a line of prisoners being processed. First, the prisoners dropped their blankets and pillowcases into a pile. How it hurt to surrender those. Would they be replaced? One couldn't assume any decency from the Nazis. But that pain was nothing compared to the loss of their Bible, for that would surely be discovered next. They had to strip and surrender their old prison clothes before taking a shower. Corey had her Bible hidden in a pouch hung around her neck, so the guards would surely see it. Not only would she lose the Bible, but she would get severely punished for having it. Oh, please, Jesus, she prayed. Allow us to keep your precious word. Betsy suddenly doubled over. Don't shoot, Corey implored the guard in German. She has diarrhea. Well, don't let her do it here, he snarled in disgust. Get her in there, he pointed at the shower room. Corey helped Betsy into the shower room. It was empty. They must have been between groups. Corey hid the pouch with the Bible behind a wooden bench crawling with roaches. Stacked at the other end of the shower room were the new prison clothes they were to wear. Then they returned to the line, shed their old clothes and returned to the shower. After a blast of icy water, Corey was dressed in her new um, prison garb, plus one Bible hung around her neck. But she soon saw her problems were not over. Security was so tight at Ravensbrook that guards were frisking prisoners after they left the shower. Oh, please, Jesus, give me another miracle. Hide me with your angels. They marched slowly past guards who searched every woman from head to toe with groping hands. Rude hands covered the woman in front of Corey. Rude hands covered Betsy behind Corey. But no hands touched Corey. She was invisible to the guards. Perhaps coincidence could explain the first miracle. Betsy really did have diarrhea. But coincidence could not explain the second miracle. Corey was sure now that she was in the hands of the Lord. The only safe strategy is belonging to God. But I see something else in this text, and um, all over this chapter, and well, certainly all over the scriptures, but certainly all over this chapter is this, that God has no competition. Do, you, do, do any of us really think that, that God needed this, um, this event of espionage? I mean, did he need these two spies to go in and, and produce some, some schematic diagrams of the walls of Jericho? So that God would, uh, would know how to take care of the situation in that city. Is that, is that what any of us think? Do we really believe that, that this front man uh, 
trip to Jericho was, uh, was for the purpose of structural diagrams. I mean, after all, we'll find out later in the, in the, in the story that, that the walls were scheduled to fall miraculously. No, God has no competition, and he regularly uses faithful front men or faithful front people, I guess to be politically correct, although it doesn't sound all that good. Faithful front men who will go in and, and, and go ahead of God and, and investigate his purposes. If we want to turn back 40 years to, to Numbers 13 and think about the, 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 the previous spy event, why did God send the spies in in the first place? Did he want them to map out a strategy for conquering the promised land? Is that what it was all about? No, no, he wanted them to go in and see the great things that he was about to give them. He, he wanted them to be men who would, who would have their faith and strengthened and, and come back with a courageous and a good report about the good things that they had seen. That's the purpose of leadership, to go before people and to see how great God is and to come back and, and, and spur up and, and, and stir up the, the faithfulness of God's people and say that God can surely deliver on his promise and encourage people to do what God has asked them to do. They failed at that miserably the last time because they said God was too small. So this time God sends these men in and their whole reason to go is to have their faith shored up, that the structure of their hearts might be shored up so they could come back and bring a good report to the people of God's faithfulness and greatness and power and mercy and grace. That God can and do what he promises. Give him the land. In fact, when we find out at the very end of the chapter, these two spies bring back this great report. The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. We can do it. The many planning exercises of God that he, that he grants to us in life are, are for the purpose of, of stirring up our hearts that we might believe in him and that we might come back and that that enthusiasm might rub off on all the people around us People who are discouraged, people who are hurting, people who have great needs, people who are wondering if God can deliver on his promises. I shared with our deacons on Thursday night that one of the great requirements and responsibilities of being in a leadership team, of being in a front team, of being front men, frontliners, is not that we would come up with the greatest strategies and tactics in life, but that we would stimulate one another and encourage one another in the faith. That God can deliver on his promises, that God is great. And that before we go to the people, we will, we will recognize his power and his greatness. And then go and share with them that our God can deliver on what he promises. And that the people ought to do what God calls them to do. It says right there in the text, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy says that men who have served as deacons gain a great boldness in the faith in Christ Jesus. That's what leadership is all about. Being in front is not so much about crafting plans and strategies as it is about being transformed into a person with deep convictions that God is who he says he is and God can do what he says he can do and he will be gracious and favor you with power and might. To be convinced of his veracity. 
But God also uses, I notice in this text, not just faithful front men. He also uses the gossip of God's stories. As Corrie ten Boom actually said, God doesn't have problems, he just has plans. I like that. We're the ones with problems. God just has plans. It's rather fascinating that God has told his people to be strong and courageous. And there's a contrast in the city of Jericho. Their hearts are melting with fear. They've heard of the stories. They've heard of God's power. They've heard of of the great events that are attributed to the great God of Israel. You see, this thing that we're involved in, it's not just fanciful fables. Some sort of larcenous legends. This thing called Christianity is real. It's about a real powerful God. We, we, aren't, uh, we aren't sharing with each other some sort of amusing folklore that, that we try to entertain each other with week after week. It's sort of a diversion. It was rather um, eye-opening when I was in India with the one-day tour with a Hindu tour guide. And, and she was talking about all the numbers of gods and goddesses of the Hindu religion, of which she ascribed to. And she was telling us about Kali and the goddess Kali, the great Calcutta goddess, and, and, and how Calcutta's, Cal, Kali's responsibility was to get rid of demons. And she turns, actually turns around and looks at us and says, but, but you know what, there aren't really demons anymore anyway, are there? And I was thinking to myself, the whole function and role of this goddess that you've invested your life in is to get rid of demons, and you aren't really even convinced that there are demons? I mean, this is just some sort of fanciful fable, some sort of folklore and legend to you that's rather amusing and entertaining as part of your culture? That, folks, that's not us. That's not Christianity. Christianity's about a real powerful God who has real powerful events that are historically recorded. And these Gossip stories, these gossip God stories precede us. We ought to be a people who experience regularly the power and presence of Jesus Christ. That the God stories might precede us into our workplace, into our homes, into the marketplace, into the retailer's store. So that they say, you're from Calvary Baptist Church. I've heard that God is with you. That's the meaning of this. That's what, that's what was happening in Jericho in this pagan city. We've actually heard that your God does stuff. We don't have time for it, but Ma- uh, Moses had written a chorus in Exodus chapter 15, which predicts this very reality. He, he writes this great chorus of the salvation of God who rescued them out of captivity in Egypt and brings the fear of God on those in the future because of the great stories of God's conquest. It says at the end of uh, chapter 4, near the end of chapter 4 in Joshua, he did this, meaning God, so that the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that That you might always fear the Lord. A powerful God. Who rules and reigns over the universe and over the hearts of his people. A kind of power that interferes with everything and anything. 
That's why we are told that that after we receive the Spirit of God, power will come on us. And we will be witnesses in Judea and Samaria, Jerusalem, and to the uttermost parts of the world. This isn't a fable. This isn't a fairy tales. It's not legends, not folklore. It's the real deal. The real thing. God has no competition. Thirdly, I see that God uses the most unlikely, and this God has no competition. He uses the most unlikely people. Now, I've got to be honest with you. This is one of God's great events in history. He's going to have his people take the promised land. And who does God choose at the pre-event conference to be the keynote speaker? He uses a Gentile woman prostitute. Now, I got to be honest with you, that, that would never have occurred to me. All right, I was lining up a speaker lineup I, 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 that was going to infuse faith and, and courage into people's hearts and the greatest conquest of all time. The one who's going to give the brave heart sermon. This is a great time to die. I, I can't think that I would choose a prostitute woman Gentile. I mean, I think if I go to our deacons and, and mention to them that next year's mission keynote speaker is a female prostitute from somewhere in the world, I'm, I'm thinking they might think that's not a real great idea. But that's who God uses. The most unlikely. And if you're really honest with yourself, and you really know anything about yourself, you realize, and God is using you, you're thinking, I'm not surprised by that because he's using me. You have this woman whereby God knocks out all of the support systems and presents for his purposes a woman who's more spiritually sensitive and astute about the things of God than ten chief leaders in Israel 40 years before who stood before the congregation of Israel and said, our God is too small. That's what they said. The people are big. Our God is too small. And we have this female Gentile Canaanite prostitute who says in her sermon, your God is too big. (laughs) Don't you love it? That's exactly what she says. She says, our hearts are melting. You guys need to know that the people in this city are freaking out. They've heard all about what God has done in and through you. And and we're sure that he's going to march right over us too. Before the spies uh, pack it in for the night and lie down, or they lie down in the house uh, of a harlot up in the loft, she's tucking them in and tells them a bedtime story, which is... Not her usual way of taking care of men. And she says in, in her, her sermon here that, that the people here, I, I know the Lord, she says in verse 8, I know that the Lord has given this land to you, that a great fear of you has fallen on us, that, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. And then she says, we've, we've heard. We've heard of the Lord. We've heard that your God can dry up water and, and have his people march through a... Uh, the, the Red Sea, we, we've heard how you rolled over Sihon and Og, the Amorite kings, 
Our hearts have melted. Our courage has failed. Isn't that fascinating? God wants to strengthen his people with courage. The contrast in the city is these people are afraid. And then she says this, one of the great confessions of faith in Scripture. For the Lord, your God, is God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that powerful? For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. I mean, he is the God of gods. We may have some gods in this thing in Jericho, but he's the real God. He's the God over this land. He's the God over this city. He is God. What a powerful testimony. And then she says, because I believe in him, I also believe that that in his name he would show kindness to me. She says, "Would would you... Would you show kindness or chesed, uh, loving kindness to me in his name? I I mean, not only does she see this great God, this great powerful God, but she sees a heart, a God who has a heart, is gracious and kind and, and offers kindness to those who come under his care. What a powerful sermon. Now, I know what you're thinking. Say, wait a second. This whole gig occurred and succeeded because she lied. So, is this woman being commended for being a liar? No, no, this isn't about faith in lying. She's being commended because she has faith in God. She she calls him who he is. Your God is God of heaven and earth. You're saying, wait a minute, what about the lying thing? Um, Rahab is uh, fresh, fresh coming out of a world of sin. Just freshly encountering the God of grace. If we're honest about our own lives, before we're quick to... challenge Rahab and her morals, her dishonesty. We need to think about where God has taken us from. How the journey has unfolded in our lives. I was rather fascinated as I was reading in Hugh's book on on this particular section. And he talks about a couple of names that you will know and their journey of faith. One is John Newton. You heard of John Newton? Wrote the great hymn, Amazing Grace. Are you aware that uh, this early leader of uh, the evangelical movement in the Church of England continued to participate in the slave trade for over a year after he became a believer? Are you also aware that that, that there's a guy by the name of Dick Day who, um, who along with Josh McDowell, a name that you will know, and Paul Lewis, run the Julian Center in San Diego... This guy was a Christian, org- a Christian organization that helps believers approach their faith holistically. He tells that he first came to Christ in the midst of a hard-drinking business environment. And he says that in order to get up enough courage to share his newfound faith with his boss, he had to have six martinis. Now Rahab would have understood this. Often our sins are assaulted with faith and God finds faith where we do not and often cannot see it. We should be slow to judge sin and quick to perceive faith. Can I just 
remind you that, um, that a church is, as the Old Testament puts it, a mixed multitude of people with really bad backgrounds. And we are all on a journey celebrating our recovery from a sinful past. And we are all somewhere along that journey. And it is imperative, as I understand this story, it is imperative that God's people, God's church, is a church that cheers for people coming out of a sinful past. It might take some time to rough off some of the edges. You know what you're like? I got some edges that are still being roughed off. Instead of being quick to criticize our imperfections, we all know we have them. We need to be people who are cheering for the process of being changed and transformed into the likeness of Christ. We ought to be people who say, you know what, you used to be here and I see where you are. It's just an amazing thing. We're asking a ministry like Celebrate Recovery to come under the protective custody of Calvary Baptist Church. You know what that means? That God is entrusting us with some messy, messy lives, just like yours and just like mine. And inviting us to have the grace that he has and the patience that he has to see the faith in the midst of some sinfulness and the progress that the Holy Spirit makes in this thing we call sanctification. The journey to recovery, the journey to Christ-likeness. And in conclusion... The third reality that I see here, and I'll wrap this up very quickly, is that this kind of real faith of Rahab is rewarded. What was her real faith? She really believed in God. She didn't have all the rough edges out of her life yet. She, the only way she knew how to get something done was to lie about it, because she'd been doing that for years. But we all know that the lie wasn't necessary. God had already determined to protect those spies. But that was the way she knew. But she took it upon herself to risk her life because she really believed that God was in charge and that she wanted to be part of that great community of of God's people. And and as a consequence, that, that real kind of faith is rewarded. You see, um, Rahab is part of the, uh, family album picture book of Jesus. You realize that? You realize that, um, that Rahab is Boaz's mother? <laughs> that great man of faith in Ruth, that, the man of great high Christian quality. You know where he came from? He came from Rahab, who ends up being the great-grandmother of King David, who ends up being in, as I said, the photo album of Jesus. To remind all of us, other than Christ, we all have a checkered past. We all have some trouble in the present. I also noticed that she, um, God had her picture framed and he hung it on the hall of the hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 31. I I, I also found that um, Rahab became one of two people mentioned as the quintessential example of real faith. 
in James chapter 2, verse 25, of all the people that could be chosen in the Bible to highlight in the New Testament by James, the brother of Jesus, he picks Abraham, okay, yeah, sounds good to us, and Rahab, you kidding me? The Canaanite prostitute? It says in the text that she, as soon as the men left, she hung the scarlet cord in the window as an act of faith. I need to ask you this morning as we close, what are the scarlet cords in your life? I want to come back and finish that question as Pastor Steve comes and leads us in our final song. I want you to think about it. What are the things in your life, the faith markers of a go big life? What are the things in your life that that declare that you have real faith. Real faith that acts. Because that's what Rahab had. Our Father, as we transition into a song of surrender and commitment, I pray that you would help us to celebrate the life of faith. And the great God who is patient and kind moves us forward as I ask it in Jesus' name for his sake.